Welcome to the District Podcast, Outside the District Edition, where we cover topics important to folks living outside of the big cities. I'm Teresa Mall, Assistant Editor at Spectator World. Today, our special guest is Tim Benson. He is a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute. He also hosts the Illiteracy Podcast there. So, Tim, you should be pretty good at podcasting. The bar is set high. Well, yeah, you know, face for radio, so that's why I do podcasting. Um, <laughs> are you the only one that does outer district stuff? They give you all the the rural stuff to do? You just... Yeah, so far, I've kind of embraced that. There's a lot, obviously, of stuff to talk about inside the district, but I have the the privilege of living outside the district. Most of my colleagues live in Washington, D.C. or the metro area, so I am the lone hillbilly, so I get So you get to keep everybody apprised of what's going down at the flying J or the <laughs> stuckies or I have written about truck stops. Yes. And um, <laughs> I mean, the, there's a big swath of the country who does not live in cities and that matters too. But anyway, so speaking of people who don't live in cities, you live in a pretty populated area. You live in Florida and you live. Uh, yeah. I live in a town called Fort Pierce. It's a city of about, uh, 40,000. Uh, but I live on a, in a part of Fort Pierce. It's called Hutchison Island. It's actually called South Beach, a little neighborhood, not like South Beach in Miami, but the little neighborhood where I live is called South Beach. Uh, there's about, well, there's about 40,000 in the city. There's probably about one or 2,000 people in my little piece of the island. I think there's about 10,000 people on the island on the whole thing, but the, the island's about 20 miles long. So that's 10,000 people stretched out over, you know, 20 miles. Okay. So pretty bustling, but mm -hmm. you've been to the rural parts of the country and I'm always bragging to you about how great they are. But <laughs> what we want to talk about today is how there is a surprising pushback, I guess you would say, from smaller communities to school choice and education choice is something that you write a lot about, you do research about at the Heartland Institute. So Tell us what's going on there. We tend to think of small communities as being pretty conservative, generally um, liking to have their freedoms. But when it comes to schools, not so much. What's going on with that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, the problem is actually uh, school choice. You see a lot of pushback on school choice from rural districts. You see a lot more from rural districts than you do uh, even from, say, suburban districts or urban districts. Even though uh, rural districts encounter some of uh, similar challenges to urban schools, you know, uh, uh, poverty, uh, funding issues, bullying and violence, uh, most of the most of the states that uh, or the where students self-report the highest highest percentages of, of bullying and violence at schools are more. Uh, rural states, you know, like uh, Alaska, uh, West Virginia, um, I'm trying to think, what, Kentucky, South Carolina, Iowa, all those states are in the top 10, Arkansas, uh, New Hampshire is pretty rural, Maine's pretty rural, um, those are all in the top 10. So uh, they have a lot of the same issues as urban school districts do, but uh, urban school uh, districts, the parents there tend to be heavily in favor in school choice. But in rural districts, they don't, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Well, uh, one of the reasons they say is, well, uh, 
there are no other options in rural areas. So it means that you'd have to, you know, transport kids, you know, uh, far out of town to another school in another, in another town and stuff like that. And there's just no options available, but, um, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, school choice is passed in the state that, uh, somebody won't recognize that there is a, an area of opportunity in a lot of these uh, smaller towns for, uh, uh, a private school to come in and uh, service uh, that community. The other problem is a lot of uh, rural communities, the school tends to be almost the center of town life. You know, there's, uh, you know, that's where most of the meetings are held in town. You know, uh, people live in town, uh, you know, have gone to that school for, you know, people and their families have gone to the schools for, you know, two or three or four generations. Uh, a lot of people who live in these small towns uh, work uh, for the school district or for the school, you know, and then there's a lot of other sort of uh, cultural aspects to it, too, just with sports and uh, just uh, town pride and how the town sort of views itself in a way. So that's a part of it, too. I mean, there's whole all kinds of reasons why. Um, you know, these things are uh, rural areas where school choice is really the least popular uh, or it's or less popular in rural areas than it is in, say, suburban and urban areas. Now you're talking about small towns identifying with their school. Friday Night Lights comes to mind, for instance, or those little small towns I'm picturing when you go on a road trip across the Midwest or something, you drive into a little town and it'll have the list of all the championships they've had in football over the decades or wrestling champions, things like that. Yeah, people definitely identify with their local schools. But I want to touch on small schools, even though these are public schools and they tend to have smaller populations, of course, in urban schools, there has been a trend, you know, going back years now, but relatively recently of consolidating small schools. You used to have your little neighborhood school that you could walk to. It was almost like going to school with a family. Um, we still have remnants of that where I live. You know, they, a lot of these buildings have been turned into apartments or into warehouses, factories, things like that, but they get shut down. And these kids still, uh, despite um, the, the pushback to school choice that you'd have to maybe bus a kid, you know, across state lines or county lines or whatever, they're still getting bussed all over the place because they're going to these big conglomerate schools that, um, that don't have the same attention to the students, that doesn't have the same kind of family connection. So can you talk about, I know there's been lots of studies on how the smaller the school, the better it is in general for kids and how we've lost that in promoting these big fancy public schools for the sake of, I don't know, districts getting more money or, um, you know, the government loves to spend money. So the bigger the school, the more money you're allowed to justify. But what's really lost in that for these kids? Um, yeah, well, you know, the bigger the school, obviously, the uh, um, you know, the more of a face in the crowd you are. But you got to remember, rural schools are some of the, you know, the costliest schools in any state's education system on a per student basis. And it's, you know, obvious why it's because they're small and very small classes are common because there's just, um, you know, they're just unavoidable. Uh, because there's just not that many students. So, you know, in, in a suburban district where you're paying a teacher to, you know, 
teach a class to 20 kids in a, in a in a rural district, you know, they're paying the same teacher the same amount of money pretty much uh, to teach a class that's uh, for, you know, six to eight kids. So um, there's a reason why consolidation happens, and that's because of just the cost uh, to upkeep so many uh, rural schools. Uh, but yeah, there is something there is something lost in consolidation, obviously. Um, Smaller is better pretty much anywhere you go, no matter, I mean, not even just education, no matter what we're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, one way to push back <laughs> against um, sort of rural consolidation um, would be, uh, you know, um, school choice passing uh, or allowing school choice and allowing, um, you know, schools to come into service, um, you know, the subset of that community. Um, that would be interested in it. And, like uh, you know, people, there's, the, and there's a lot of fear in rural districts about uh, choice schools and what would happen to their towns or their schools if if, if uh, school choice were allowed to uh, take place there. But you're probably not, you're probably not going to see an exodus of, of kids from, uh, from these schools. You know, most parents are happy with the schools, most kids are happy with the schools, even though the these schools aren't that great. Um, people are still happy with them. You know, it's sort of people <laughs> people approach public schools. It's sort of like uh, the difference between how people think of Congress and how people think of their congressmen. You know, you ask most people. You know, like Congress as a whole has like an approval rating of like you know eight or nine percent. But then when you ask people about their, you know, their own congressmen, they're, they're you know, generally favorably disposed, uh, you know, uh, disposed towards them. And which is why there's such a, you know, high rate of incumbency in Congress. It's the same thing with uh, public schools. You know, most people think public schools are trash and they're right. Uh, but they seem to think that their school that their kid goes to, uh, their neighborhood school is pretty good. And for the most part, they're wrong. Um but anyway, uh, so the point is, yeah, that, uh, you know, but there were all there are people everywhere who are dissatisfied with their schooling options and, um, you know, would like uh, to be able to send their kid uh, someplace other than the school uh, they have to attend. Uh, and those people should be allowed to, uh, you know, to have those options for their children. And, you know, not everyone's going to take advantage of it. Um, not everyone wants to, not everyone needs to, and that's fine. Uh, but the people who don't want to take advantage of it should not hold others back from wanting to do what's best for their children. Yeah, I think that's a big misunderstanding promoted by probably primarily teachers unions that if you give parents education choice that the public schools are automatically going to go away. But that's only the case if the public schools are really terrible, which is right. why the, <laughs> the teachers union spread these rumors because they feel threatened that other schools are going to come in and outperform them. But we've seen that, like you said, a lot of times parents are satisfied with the public schools and they go along coexisting with the charter schools, with the private schools, with the homeschooling co-ops, with every other option there is. But it's just not fair to force a child into a one-size-fits-all school if that doesn't work for him or her. And so all education choice does is it's not attacking public schools. It's not attach attacking public school teachers, anything like that. It's just saying, hey, 
this this one school in your one little town might not work for you. So here, parents, here's a, here's an option for you. So what is your favorite kind of school choice? I know what mine is. Oh, Catholic schools? Is that what you, what you're talking about? <laughs> well, I do love Catholic schools. Of course, I'm a product of them. And mm. I think I turned out great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I was talking about... Um, oh, just the different forms know. of school choice? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, education savings accounts are um, pretty much the way they go. They're the most flexible. They Can allow. you explain to our listeners what that is in case they're unfamiliar? Sure. Yeah. So basically, an education savings account, how that works is uh, parents uh, sign up for if there's a program in their state, they uh, get their kids signed up for it. And they basically receive in a sort of like a controlled use debit card funding uh, that they can use to uh, pay for their child's tuition and uh, fees at a parochial school or a private school uh, along with depends on and this all the other stuff depends on the different programs in the state. But most of them also pay for textbooks and tutoring services. Uh, online programs, uh, AP courses, uh, some transportation costs, some uh, pay for uniforms, some uh, also pay for, uh, well, most of them pay for the uh, fees to take a, a standardized test like the SAT or the ACT, even though you're probably not going to need to take those anymore the way, the way it's going with uh, higher education these days. But um, so they're the the benefits of the ESA as opposed to a voucher uh, is that ESA is, is more flexible and it gives parents and students uh, more options uh, with that money, more ways to supplement their, uh, their education uh, that way. And I just want to point out, too, uh, back to the point we were talking about with uh, just the fears of people who, um, for people who don't want uh, school choice because they're happy with their pri- uh, public schools. Uh, here in Florida, there's been a lot of studying going on with this because Florida probably has the most robust uh, school choice sector of any state in the country. I think we have almost 200,000 kids now uh, making use of uh, our myriad school choice programs. And uh, a lot of research has gone into this. And public schools that are located uh, near private schools that make use of the uh, make use of school choice programs actually uh, perform better um, because they face more competition. And so they've actually seen their scores increase at a higher percentage than those public schools that don't have that competition nearby. Um, and then there's also uh, higher educational attainment from public school students who are, uh, like I said, in schools that are located next to schools of choice, that sort of thing. So um, not only do school choice programs benefit the children who make use of the programs. They actually also benefit the children who don't, but are in areas where um, the competition is sufficient to sort of get the public schools to step up their game a little bit. Yeah, choice, competition makes everybody better. We know that. What also I think is interesting is how choice makes parents better, I think. (laughs) <laughs> that's how you can put sure, it because they're um, more involved it's right it, yeah i think that in the rural areas um you just send your kid to the local school because that's the only option you have you don't really think about it you send them off at eight in the morning whatever pick them up at three so how was your day it was good you know the teachers you see them in the grocery store whatever you don't really think much about it you just it's it's nice you know mm-hmm. quote unquote. it's just it's a nice experience it's um, easy 
And that might be fine. Yeah. But what we've seen research that shows whenever parents do have an option, they think all of a sudden, oh, I, I can send my kid to a school that specializes in technology, or I can send my kid to a private school that teaches religion, or I can teach my child myself and get funding to pay for textbooks or, you know, all of these different options. It's amazing how parents, and we've seen that happen with COVID. I know that there was the emergence of micro schools and more homeschooling co-ops and just parents sitting with their kid during the day on their computer, watching and listening. And, you know, sometimes that backfired for some of the the more progressive schools. Um, I think that's when the critical race theory stuff kind of started to come to light. Um, Parents are actually getting involved in learning what their kids were learning, which is a good thing. So, that's another way that school choice helps kids. So if you had a message to rural parents and families about school choice and why they should not fear it, what would you say? Well, like I said, like we were talking about, it's really, you're not going to see a mass exodus of kids from these schools, or most likely not. Uh, if you look at the polling when they ask uh, parents, you know, if if all options were in front of you, what uh, type of schooling would uh, you prefer for your for your child? And I think it's only about 30, 35% say they would do uh, private school. Most would, or, uh, and then homeschooling is about 10%. Um, charter schools are uh, about 20%, something like that, and the rest are public schools. So you're not going to see uh, a mass exodus of, of kids from these schools. Um, and you just, like I said, like we were talking about, you don't have to fear it. It's not going to, um, it's not going to drain, um, money away from your public school. The way that most of these accounts or programs are set up, uh, a little bit money, you know, 10% or so, or 20%, 30%, depending on the program, um, from each student is still left behind, uh, at the public school, even though the student isn't there. So, so you're teaching fewer students, uh, with more money. Um, you know, just, uh, but you'd also have to just think about all the other benefits that come with it. Like we were talking about before the, uh, the increasing competition, uh, helps public schools step up their game. Uh, there's been tons of research on school choice programs, uh, across the country, um, gold standard research, um, you know, that these programs, uh, increase competition, they decrease segregation, they improve civic values and practices. Um, you know, research also shows uh, private schools, uh, students are less likely than their public school peers to experience problems such as alcohol abuse or bullying or drug use or fighting, you know, gang activity, racial tensions, vandalism, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's also, not it hasn't quite been proven, but there's been a couple studies on this. There's a strong causal uh, link suggesting private school choice programs improve the mental health of participating students. So uh, students are happier um, when they're in a school that's a better fit for them. Uh, they're healthier when they're in a school that's a better fit for them. And uh, everybody wins. The parents are happier. The kids are happier. The teachers are happier. Um, so there's nothing really to fear. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, things aren't going to ever change that much in, in your town if uh, school choice, uh, you know, if your state happens to pass a school choice program, don't fear it, you know, just accept the change. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. 
And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. 